the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Sock Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Welcome to Sock Talk Radio. I'm your host, Neil Bradley, and with me in the studio this week is G- Jason, Juliana, and Scott. So the title for this week's show is Physician Heal Thyself, Disease and Modern Diet. Pretty, uh, pretty weighty topic, but we'll try and make some light of it too. Um, we're going to be discussing with our very special guest, Dr. Dwight Lundell. Dr. Lundell is the former Chief of Staff and Chief of Surgery at Banner Heart Hospital in Mesa, Arizona, where he also had his own uh, private practice. After spending 25 years performing over 5,000 heart surgeries, Dr. Lundell left surgery about a decade ago to focus on the nutritional treatment of heart disease. He is the founder of Healthy Humans Foundation, whose vision is to, quote, help the human race free itself from chronic diseases caused by improper nutrition and misleading consumer information. Dr. Lundell has published two books, The Cure for Heart Disease and The Great Cholesterol Lie. Welcome, Dr. Dwight Lundell. Well, thank thanks you very much. Thanks for being on our show. Oh, well, thanks, thanks for being here. Hello. Hello. I, I think your name will be familiar to a lot of our readers because, uh, and our listeners today because your article... Uh, heart surgeon speaks out on what really causes heart disease. I think it was one of the most popular we ever had. I, I think uh, we got a huge number. Yeah, it was. People really liked that article. I think we picked it up, and then someone else picked it up, and next thing you know, it was it literally viral. Yeah. It went around. There, wasn't it, somebody saying that Rush Limbaugh was talking about it? I point? think so. Yeah, he he referenced Sotnet and this article, uh, and he was talking about it. And I don't know what the chain of events was, but. Uh, it, it was heard far and wide, like, which is cool. You know, it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> Satan talking about, you know. <laughs> That's not cool. Yeah, it's well, like, I'm not so it's sure. It's like if you're the Pope and Satan's talking about you, then you know you've done right. You know you've done right to everything, you know. <laughs> well, um, well it, was, Dr. It, 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 it was interesting. Uh, uh, my, my son called me and said, you're going to be on Rush Limbaugh in a few minutes, and he spent a half hour and went over into the next segment and <laughs> read the entire piece, and uh, apparently he and loves net. <laughs> Oh, I see. Did did Rush Limbaugh then get you on his show? No, uh, he did not no. get me on the show. But Fox News had me on three times to comment on heart disease. I see. What what did Limbaugh say about it? I'm I'm curious because when I was growing up as a teenager, I used to watch Limbaugh all the time because I just thought it was hilarious. But I mean, what was his what was his spiel? Does, do you know, do you know, Doctor Lindo? Uh, yes, I do. I listened to the show and. Um, I think what appealed to him was that uh, we were going against. Uh, you know the government's current dietary recommendations, and, but he right. read the whole article and uh, uh, on his show. Wow. wow, awesome! Well, you began it with a confession, in which you admitted that you had been wrong about the cause of heart disease. Now, considering this is, I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm wrong in saying this is an epidemic. But what is it? Eighty million people have some degree of heart disease, or 
or other. Um, what exactly, what's wrong? How do, where do we begin this? What is it that officially has been so wrong? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I had a very, one of my very smartest professors in medical school uh, told me when I was a young student, uh, the worst thing that can happen to a patient is a diagnosis. Well, Period. puzzled me greatly because I thought we were here to make a diagnosis. And his response was that when we make a diagnosis, then everyone stops thinking about what's wrong. I see. So the diagnosis... About, uh-huh. <laughs> that's profound. Yeah. I mean, we, we put a name yeah. on a disease, and we think that means we understand it completely. And he used a, a little example of uh, certain diseases, if we don't know the cause, we call them idiopathic. And his response to that was the, the uh, doctor is an idiot, and the patient is pathetic. <laughs> so his advice was that we should always keep our minds open and look and look, and if we don't really honestly know the fundamental biology of a disease, then we really don't understand it, even if we have some uh, treatment that's moderately effective for it. Well, can I ask you, like, uh, it seems when I encounter doctors, now I'm kind of ignorant about this because I'm not really a scientific person or scientific minded or anything like that, but I have a lot of experience with doctors uh, as a patient. Oh, <laughs> and it's right. my understanding, yeah, it's unfortunate. I've I've spent quite a lot of time in hospitals and, and spent time in a hyperbaric chamber as well, um, healing out the surgery. So, so I've met specialists of, of all kinds. And the one thing that I've, I've really noticed about them is, is, they never seem to know what's wrong. And so I really want to know, uh, how much does medical science really know about disease to begin with? I mean, they all say so that they're so sure, but I mean, um, you know, what does medical science know about heart disease? Like, really know, like a fact about it, you know? You see what I'm saying? <laughs> well, Do we know really a know? lot more. We know a lot more than we did, for example. Um, when I first started in, in school, uh, we really had basically no effective treatment for heart disease, and there was a lot of excitement about heart disease because about 90% of the young soldiers killed in the Korean War uh, had some form of heart disease, some of them relatively severe, and so there was a lot of excitement about it, and we really had nothing, to, n- no treatment for it until the coronary bypass came along. So um, to, to me, um, we could take someone who was near death and... Um, do this little uh, coronary bypass, uh, you know, a little rearrangement of the plumbing and give them back their life, give them back to their families, give them back to their wife. And so even though I didn't understand the disease, uh, I had a solution for it, at least a moderately, at least a temporary solution that really worked 99% of the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, I think that's what happens a lot of times in medicine if we discover somehow that there's a treatment that's effective, then uh, we'll use it even if we don't understand the fundamental biology of what's going on behind the scene. Yeah, that's something very interesting that you said in your book, actually, which we're highly recommending to our all our listeners because it's really, really well explained. And you, you make a comment at one point. You say, you know, I had become a mechanic. And it's great to have mechanics, but why does there... Why is there a need for mechanics when we can't prevent hearts from breaking in the first place? And 
you know, maybe you can expand a little bit more on that in terms of how medicine is nowadays? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I, cancer, for example, we we don't know what causes cancer. We have lots of treatments for it. Mm-hmm. We can uh, we can cut it out. We can burn it with uh, radiation, or we can poison uh, try to poison it and everything else with chemotherapy. And indeed, for some cancers, we really have a very effective treatment. Uh, we we understand some of the biology of cancer cells, but we we don't really understand what triggers it in the beginning. And so uh, our ability to prevent cancer in a wide in a wide array of things, uh, uh, because we don't understand what causes it, um, you know, we can't prevent it now. Some of the nutritional strategies uh, involved in treating heart disease are also um, important in in cancer, but uh, nevertheless, we don't fundamentally have an understanding why uh, suddenly cells would begin to divide abnormally and uh, turn into a cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> when it comes to heart disease, yeah, on the one hand, we've got all we've got the mechanics working the best they can with what they know. But it's it's been underpinned for decades, in fact, nigh on a century, by what has turned out to be an assumption about cholesterol and its dangers. Can you expand on that a bit? I mean, cholesterol, I, 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 I did some research before the show, and I, I, I was trying to get information on this, and sort of a, a timeline of cholesterol and, and how it became a fundamental basis for treating heart disease and other illnesses. And I realized that I was type, I was searching in cholesterol theory and what the results I was getting was that it, they were critis, criticisms of this idea that cholesterol... What that told me right away was that it was ne- it, it maybe it once was considered a theory, but it had very much become fact. So... I think this is going to be key to understanding how it all went wrong here. What what was it about cholesterol that made it the, the number one target for uh, for for treating people with heart disease? Well, I, I you've you've read the history recently, and correct me if I'm wrong, but old pathologists going all the way back to Virchow uh, took a look at the plaque that was in the artery and indeed there was cholesterol in the plaque and so i think that's what started him and other people thinking about cholesterol was that here was something abnormal inside the artery and it contained cholesterol so there must be a connection of some kind right is that how you read the history yeah exactly um that uh they were seeing that there was a uh build up well as i understood it was a build up of cholesterol that encases itself around a person's arteries and that this was the problem. And step by step, that leads to the recommendation that people lower the amount of dietary cholesterol they're taking. And that's how that's how we, we came to get the dietary recommendation that people eat a low-fat diet. Um, and what was clear to me from what you've been saying and others too is that we seem to have gone in completely the wrong direction 
based on this assumption that the problem was cholesterol to begin with. Does that sound about right? I... That, that That is right, and I, I cover some of the history of it in the book, um, about who, who some of the major players were and how, how it developed, but... Yeah, it's it started because we looked in under the microscope, even a crude microscope, uh, 150 years ago, and saw cholesterol. And then we started uh, experimenting, and we fed uh, we fed large amounts of cholesterol to a rabbit who's fundamentally a, a vegetarian biologically, and uh, saw that lesions developed in the arteries. And so uh, then uh, then the the famous uh, Framingham study was started in Massachusetts to observe people over long periods of time, and um, they made a correlation uh, between cholesterol levels and uh, the incidence of heart disease, and uh, it just began to build momentum from there with, um, uh, without everybody, anybody ever asking why in the world would a normal substance that we produce in our liver and that every cell in our body need why would it connect yeah. in the yeah. wall of the blood vessel? Absolutely. Well, maybe for those listeners who are not familiar with this topic, um, could you um, pretty much summarize a little bit what you say in your book? You start by saying, you know, that half of the patients that you saw uh, with heart problems had normal cholesterol levels. So that couldn't be a, a cause. Um, and many of the studies prove that it's not is not the cause of heart problems. It's just maybe a consequence of the uh, inflammation that starts way before, you know, when you talk about us being uh, time bombs, you know. So could you explain just in simple terms the uh, the principle behind inflammation and why cholesterol ends up there and what type of cholesterol, this bad cholesterol that everybody talks about, why is it there and, and is it really bad? Whoa, you gave me a big topic to make very simple there, but... No <laughs> <laughs> problem. I'll try, because uh, it's very important. Uh, we can make observational studies, we can do um, epidemiological studies, and we can do correlations and whatnot, but that never tells us the fundamental biology, and and um, that's... That's where we have to go to understand all of the diseases that that afflict us. Uh, so, once again, we made a diagnosis about heart disease was elevated cholesterol, and we all we had to do was either bypass the lesion or or uh, treat it with a cholesterol medication. Or, along in the uh, mid to late 80s along came angioplasty, a less invasive way of treating it by sticking a little balloon in the artery and blowing it up and then that was followed by putting a little piece of metal in there called a stent. Well, when the stents began to fail and reclose very quickly, uh, that made us wonder about our diagnosis. So once again, we'd all stopped thinking about what was wrong until we had a treatment that wasn't working. And so that's when people began to take another look back at the fundamental biology of what goes on in this blood vessel. And that's when uh, we went back actually and looked at Verkow's work from 1880 or whatever and uh, saw that he saw indeed not only did he see cholesterol in the wall of the blood vessel, but he saw white blood cells. And white blood cells, as you know, are, are inflammatory defenses. They defend us against the bacteria and viruses and 
everything else that comes along. So not only was there cholesterol, but there was active white blood cells and a bunch of dead white blood cells and a bunch of decayed cholesterol in the wall of the artery. And so as people began to look at angioplasty and why they feel, we began to see that it really was fundamentally inflammation was the only reason that cholesterol would ever collect in the wall of our blood vessel. Now, let me back up a little bit and, uh, and say that um, uh, inflammation always follows injury. I mean, if, if we're never injured, then we would never have inflammation. And injury can either be viral or bacterial or chemical. Um, but there has to be a little injury for these. And once there's an injury, then a cascade of events happens that's called inflammation. And if we didn't have acute inflammation, uh, we would die from every infection or injury or virus that came along. So we yeah. need it. It's like fundamental a, to us. It's a kind of warning system. It's like sure. a protection and system, you know. Absolutely. It's, a, it's our defense. And what happens is the white blood cell is triggered by this cascade of chemicals and signals, and it becomes very aggressive. And if it sees anything that's abnormal, anything that's antigenic or that it recognizes abnormal, then its job is to gobble it up and eat it. That's what's called a, a phagocyte. Right. And so its job is to eat a bacteria or a virus or, or debris or foreign particles of any kind. So that's fundamentally the job of the white cell to defend us is to to go out there and 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 kill the enemy by by actually eating it. Yeah, phago yeah. meaning eat. Okay. And so what happens? Uh, what happens then is if we do something that injures uh, the wall of our blood vessel, or if we injure us somewhere else, and we have all these inflammatory signals going on, then the lining of our blood vessel, which is called the endothelium which is really the, the key cells that control our blood flow and whether our blood clots. And, and if you stop and think about it, everything that we take in, the air and the water and everything else, has got to go through that endothelium to get to our cells. So it's a key critical layer not only in controlling our blood flow, but in controlling what goes in and what goes out. So uh, if this gets injured or if there's an activation of inflammatory cytokines, then... Uh, the white cells go into the wall of the blood vessel, and they're looking for they're looking for the bad guys to kill. And if a bad guy comes along that's an LDL that's normal, there's no antibody on a normal LDL. It goes right past; they ignore it. But if it sees an LDL that has been oxidized, that LDL is now abnormal. Or if it that's sees so an LDL cold. that's glycated. That is, it has a sugar molecule attached to it. It deems that one as abnormal, mm. and it gobbles them up because it thinks it's an enemy. And that's fundamentally how cholesterol gets into the wall of our blood vessel by being gobbled up by an inflammatory cell. So, so basically, so what you're what you're kind of saying is the crud that's inside the artery is basically white cell excrement from it gobbling up abnormal looking cells just to just to see if I follow because I'm not a science person so I don't know yes, yes. It, it it basically is for for some reason these cells can't completely dissolve and destroy 
the cholesterol that they take in. Right. Fundamentally because it's abnormal. And so if you look at this white cell under the microscope in the wall of a blood vessel, it looks like it's got little bubbles of fat in it, and it's got its name called the foam cell. And this is the very, very beginning of um, of heart disease. So you're correct. It's basically excrement of white cells, if you will. Okay. Okay. No, I'm just because my mind is like so simple. I can't. I can't really follow the scientific <laughs> stuff. So I mean, I'm just cause, because like you're dancing around the issue, but you're basically saying, I guess, what it is is that there's uh, these abnormal reactions going on, and the white cell, the inflammation starts. The white cell goes in there because it's like inflamed area, need to take charge, must eat, uh, brains kind of zombie cell thing goes in there, sees all this stuff that's now weirdified, consumes it. Pushes it out the back end, and that's what's left in there, which is really weird, to be honest. The human body is a strange, strange thing. Yeah. Well, so what's really doesn't... interesting here? Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to tell you that what's interesting is that you say you know the, the cholesterol was there for a purpose. It, it has protective functions. It, it it wants to be recycled in the body. It's essential for the living organism. But when the sugar comes in, that's the re- when the real problem starts. Hence, sugar is the culprit, not cholesterol, right? That is correct. And the way sugar is a problem is because it causes inflammation in these endothelial cells. And there's a reason for that. But we'll back up and just say that when these endothelial cells are injured by high sugars, then the white cells and the cholesterol, for that matter, come there to to fight the enemy and to repair the damage. And once again, the only LDL, so-called bad cholesterol, which is really false because it's a low-density lipoprotein, it's a big particle with cholesterol in it. But when that when that particle gets oxidized or glycated, that's when we have trouble. So, yeah, but one thing is, like, I was always very confused. People were, like, saying sugar was bad for you, and I was surprised to find out that when it comes right down to it, sugar doesn't necessarily mean that white stuff that you put in your coffee. Doesn't sugar mean other things? It's like the foods that you eat get converted into sugar inside your stomach. So if you're eating like a piece of bread or you're eating some sort of high processed food, even though it might say on the back there's X number of sugar, when, you're, when it goes into your stomach, it gets broken down, your body is actually getting a whole bunch of different types of sugars and breaking them down, Right. It takes a whole lot of different kinds of sugars and breaks them down fundamentally into glucose. And you'll remember the chemical formula for that, right? Uh, no idea. <laughs> <laughs> C6H12O6. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, so uh, at any rate, um, uh, yes, we only absorb glucose and fructose and maybe a little, uh, maybe a few other little simple molecules, once again, that are broken down into the six carbon uh, uh, elements. Uh, so so if it's a potato, if it's a piece of bread, if it's some delicious pasta from uh, from south of you there in Italy, um, uh, it's broken down into glucose and into our bloodstream. So it doesn't really matter if it's bio or not bio. It's still going to end up being sugar in your body, right? Correct. So there's sugars and then there's like fats. There's like and stuff like that. So there's only those two types of things. When you eat food, 
they're going to get broken down into like amino acids and things like this, right? Can you explain that process? Because I'm curious. Yeah, there there are three macronutrients actually. You mentioned two. Uh, carbohydrates uh, is one, uh, fats is another, and proteins are another. And so those are the the three macronutrients that we need to survive. And as you pointed out, we need uh, certain uh, certain things are called essential because the body can't produce them. And we have 21 or so essential amino acids, and we have a few essential um, fatty acids uh, that we can't make, that we have to consume. Uh, interestingly enough, there's not an essential carbohydrate. Yeah, because your body even apparently it makes them out of protein, uh, what it gets from protein and glycolysis or something like this. I can't, can't remember. I, I read some Wikipedia page about this. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we can. Uh, fundamentally, if you if you go without fat, you'll die. If you go without protein, you'll die. If you go without carbohydrates, you make enough. Uh, you can produce enough carbohydrates in the liver from uh, from protein and a little bit from fat, um, and to to provide the glucose that you need to for those cells that only can use glucose. Um, but lots of cells are very happy, and in fact, much happier. Um, burning fat than they are uh, carbohydrates, although carbohydrates are, you know, as you've read, uh, supposedly the easiest source. Just because it's easy uh, doesn't always mean it's the best source. Right. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, some of us, uh, we, we have a forum, where, a discussion forum, where we uh, talk about all these subjects, and um, um, Laura, who unfortunately is not here, she uh, she actually had a very interesting experience uh, way back in, I think it was 2006. It's too bad she's not here because she tells stories better than I do. But anyway, she had a herniated um, trickle disc, and they gave her a ton of steroids, you know, an anti-inflammatory drug. And for the first time in her life, she had lived with chronic disease problems since she was nine. She had arthritis at the age of nine. She was in pain. Constant pain. And then from one day to the other, when she got that massive dose of uh, steroids, she was pain-free. And she was like, well, wait a minute. This is, you know, an anti-inflammatory drug. I must have inflammation. She didn't know what living pain-free was. So we started researching all that. And then, first of all, we we started, um, we found the research on gluten, casein, you know, grains in general. And uh, several of us decided to give it a try and eliminated those from the diet. And it made a huge difference because, you know, you already remove a bunch of toxic carbohydrates from from just eliminating gluten. And then we found the uh, paleo diet or, you know, some people found the Atkins diet, but mainly we uh, we moved into the paleolithic diet. And it made a huge difference for a lot of our group members who said, you know, I'm pain-free, I, I don't have any, you know, people people even curing diabetes. And yeah. things really, really... You know, it made a drastic change. And now we're, uh, since, what, 2010, 2011, uh, we started trying the ketogenic diet. Have you heard about it? Oh, yes. How's it and working? And what's your take on it? Well, for most of the people who whom we heard of, it's really, really working great. I could I could tell a little bit of a story about that on the whole diet thing. So, like... um. I started getting really fat, actually, probably when I was about 9 or 10, I started to get pudgy. You know, People started making fun of me for being fat. And as I got older into the teenage years, 
I, I was uh, I, I was I, I, when I was fourteen. I think I was two hundred and forty pounds or something wow. like that. I remember. And uh, finally, when I got to be, I was about twenty five, twenty six. I, I weighed over three hundred and forty pounds. About yeah, I was I was very. I mean, I've despite being very fat, I'm also naturally athletic, which everyone knows. You know, I do all kinds of like crazy stuff. And even though I'm like I have a lot of girth, I, I've also got like a lot of muscle mass. I can, you know, lift a lot of weight. But I also have this had this thick layer of fat over my body. And I, and I went to this doctor because I have a genetic disorder called Vernoy, um, which is hydrogenitis superativa. And I went to this doctor because I had one of these things, and he said to me, you're morbidly obese, um, you need to come under the knife, we're going to tie your stomach off with this, they install this, like, ripcord <laughs> into your stomach, and, like, it's got, like, a hole outside your belly, and you're supposed to, like, tighten it or something. I mean, it was totally insane. Uh, so I felt, you know, you know, really, really bad about this. And, uh, you know... Um, and then I got sick, you know, with some, uh, what did he call it, tigmorditis. It was just sort of random inflammation of the colon. And I had had this repeatedly, you know, over over the years, you know. I My colon would become very, very painful. I would have, you know, like blood in my stool and all this different stuff. And I went to a doctor and the doctor said, okay, we have to give you a colonoscopy. And I said, okay, he said, for the next uh, two days, you need to be on a non-residue diet. And I said, well, what's a non-residue diet? And he's like, well, basically, we need to clean out your colon and and stop the irritation so that I can go in there with the with the camera. Stop the inflammation. Yeah. And in order to do that, you have to clean it out a bit so you can't eat any vegetables. <laughs> you can't eat any fibers. You can only eat some meat and maybe like a little bit of mashed potatoes or rice, basically. And so, like, when, you know, my mom was there and, and, and actually Juliana was there at the time, and it was just sort of like this light bulb came on because here's this doctor. He's about to, you know, stick a camera into my colon, you know, look at it, and he's saying the thing that's going to calm it down so that he can inspect it and clean it out is for me not to eat fiber and to only eat kind of like meat and, uh, and you know, just sort of non-residue food. And so then I said, well... Why don't I just eat that all the time? <laughs> you know, why don't I just stop eating those grains and stuff? So that's what I did. And I lost 64 kilos, which is what? It's almost 100 and... 100, 100 sometimes. Pounds, yeah. yeah, it's about 130 pounds. You know, I lost 130 pounds. I mean, you know, I'm not completely, you know, hyper skinny and stuff. So so I went on that, basically. I stopped eating rice, which was like my staple food. I stopped eating any of that. I just sort of ate you know, kind of like meat and fatty stuff and every once in a while mashed potato or something like that, something that would be really easy on my colon, totally cleared up the problem. Uh, I stopped having this swollen colon. Like every, you know, three to six months, I would have like these horrible, horrible cramps and blood in my stool. That stopped. I had, um, uh, what did they call it, irritable bowel syndrome. I had really been irritable bowel syndrome, and that just completely disappeared, you know, and... So I mean that that's kind of like my story with the, my experience of one of my one of my hospital experiences where yeah so like Jason then we we have several stories like that of people who stopped eating what's recommended in the nutritional pyramid basically and they cured all kinds of problems now we're into this you know high or researching still uh, this ketogenic diet but um, I don't know I'd like to hear what you think about it do you think it's something you would recommend. <laughs> well, the uh, uh, the answer is yes. I, I just before we this conversation, I said that that's carbohydrates are the one macronutrient that we can actually live without. 
because we have the capacity to produce to the small amounts, maybe 200 to 200 grams that we need, we can actually manufacture. And mm -hmm. lots of cells prefer fatty acids and ketones um, over glucose and function better uh, on those things. But over and above that, the the um, the idea that some things are inflaming our intestine and um, and that's a big bunch of inflammation because uh, the surface area of our intestinal tract, if you laid out all of it flat, completely flat, would be about the size of a football field. Yeah, a lot in of one person. So in you, oh. when that's inflamed, that's why you were so sick. Now, it wasn't mm -hmm. all inflamed, but lots of it was, and lots of it yeah. apparently was inflamed from from the gluten and other uh, elements that are in uh, that are in grains. And um, although the people with true uh, gluten sensitivity, you know, in a medical diagnosis are, are not rare, but they're not that many, the people with minor reactions to it who don't get overly symptomatic. Now, maybe they're just as gluten-sensitive as anybody else, but they don't have quite the dramatic response. So um, lots of athletes, professional triathletes that we know of um, who had huge amount of GI troubles during events who were able to calm those all down and compete with uh, by eliminating uh, grains from their diet. And uh, I've actually, Bill Davis wrote the book uh, uh, Wheat Belly, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen yeah, that one, that. but uh, uh, he's in a, uh, a friend of mine, and we've corresponded uh, actually for quite a few years now about this and that and the other. And uh, while he may, the gluten, I think he's right on, and uh, he's re he reports every day about reader after reader with stories similar to yours who who were suddenly. Um, much improved in terms of uh, irritable bowel and all those kind of things by eliminating uh, a wheat from their diet. Now, um, he he proposes that uh, that uh, well, I'll back on that. I'll, I'll back from that. Over and above that, uh, over and above the toxicity from the the gluten and the gliadins, uh, the toxicity from the high amounts of carbohydrate we get from most foods made with wheat is just as important in inflaming our blood vessels as uh, gluten and gliadin are in, in inflaming our bowel. And mm -hmm. so when we eat wheat, we get a double whammy. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it could even add a, a third branch to that, the, the psychological impacts. I mean, of course, if you're inflamed and or in pain, uh, you know, you, you're not going to be thinking straight. That's That's something that... Uh, for myself, I, I had no obvious physical symptoms, you know, that were telling me something was wrong when I was eating a regular balanced diet, lots of carbs. But making a change and testing out, you know, upping the fat intake and reducing the amount of vegetables and so on, it is an amazing effect on your concentration levels, on your ability well, to be productive, your energy thing. levels. Here's one thing that I've noticed that nobody really talks about or is told, and I don't know if it's consistent across everybody, but I do know that it's it's something that I have definitely noticed. When you cut out carbs, okay, you do see improvements. But then if you try to go back to the same level, I mean, if you 
go off processed foods and, 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 and high carbo, high sugar, all this different stuff. You go off that, and then you think you can have a hamburger from McDonald's, or you think you can have some French fries or something like that, and you go and have it, it hits you like a ton of bricks, okay? If I eat anything, I, I can detect if things have gluten in them. People will say, oh, it doesn't have gluten. I went over to somebody's house, and they used something. They put a sauce on it. I said, is there any gluten in it? They said, no, I ate it. I knew it had gluten, and I know it because I have a very strong reaction to it. That's your warning it, system. That's the inflammatory kicking in in your favor. Worse. It's gotten actually worse, my reaction to it. It's gotten stronger and more clear. So that if I have something like, you know, high-carbohydrate processed food, that hits me like a ton of bricks, and the next day I feel like total crap. Is that something you can you can confirm, Dr. Lundell, from your patients or people who talk to you about, you know, becoming more aware of the sensations they get? Oh, absolutely, yes. And that's why I called... I, I called uh, we did the double whammy. Not only do we have the the reaction in the wall of the intestine that uh, that then triggers off all of those cascades of irritable bowel and allows lots of bad things to get in our blood that shouldn't get in there because the bowel wall is so inflamed and doesn't work properly. But over and above that is the high glycemic index of all of these products that are made out of flour. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they can call them whole grain Cheerios, but that's a lie. I mean, you can go out in the field and get a handful of wheat in, in your hand and chew it up, and it turns into gum. That's gluten. It's glue is where the word came from. Yeah. So unless if we if we don't take this wheat and grind it very finely and process the heck out of it, you really can't eat it. I mean, I don't think I could survive on on whole. I mean, That's on typical. real <laughs> curd kernels what of wheat we, because once again it turns into gum. But one uh, thing that's interesting. Uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that. Oh, uh, uh, that's all right. Um, the other thing that Doctor Davis says is that. Elements in wheat are addictive. Yep. And um, I don't know, I don't want to argue with him, but I don't know for sure if it's the glucose or the gliadin mm -hmm. that's addictive, or both. I won't argue that. Because we know that glucose is addicting and, and triggers uh, the pleasure centers in the brain very much like other drugs of addiction, uh, cocaine and morphine and heroin and all those kind of things. So uh, the no pleasure thing, centers, right? the dopamine, the all the rest are, are, if you do a PET scan, the same centers get activated. And, and mm -hmm. as you look at people that overeat, uh, just go to the buffet and, and watch. And um, it, it's compulsive behavior. And, and you mm -hmm. look, I mean, you were a smart guy. You, you, have, you controlled many other things in your life, but you can control what you ate. And, and it's it's an addiction. It's it, it's not as quick. Uh, I mean, the results and the complications are not as quick as the addiction to drugs are, but they happen, and they're just as strong, in my opinion. And um, you know, that's not to not to uh, diminish the tragedies of uh, a drug addiction. But what's not tragic about uh, diabetes and an amputation and dialysis and blindness? Exactly. They're just as an heart disease. They're just as tragic. And uh, they come from uh, this uh, element in uh, in our diet called carbohydrates. I gave a, a talk a few weeks ago on the low-carb cruise, and I said the most toxic 
molecule in the human diet is glucose. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody tweeted that out, and it caused a, a bit of an uproar, saying that <laughs> I don't understand about physiology because glucose is necessary, and on and on and on. Oh, it's God. kind of funny. Yeah, well, <laughs> they, they would, be, being junkies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I've noticed, you know, because when people come to visit, you know, they, uh, they, they, they freak out when there's no bread on the table. And they ask uh-huh. things like, don't you have any bread? And we say, no, we don't eat bread. And they're like, you don't eat bread. You know, and it's really kind of actually a bit funny, too. It's sad, not really funny, but it is sort of like you, like, see them freaking out that there's no bread. And it's like when it's not when, – when it's just there on the table and everybody eats it, nobody thinks about it. But when there's no bread on the table, like, people – like, people will actually not – they'll come to our house, visit, and then they'll go out to eat. Oh no 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 yeah yeah no you guys just eat by eat by yourself right and they they go out of their way to be really polite no 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 it's okay yeah no you don't have to cook for us no no we'll we'll just go out and find something and and it's it's it, they're like going out to get their fix type of thing it's, yeah it is kind of sad and people feel sorry for you like oh my god you're living such a restrictive restrictive life how, how do you how do you keep beating yourself up to stay on it well here's the, the thing. thing is. You don't crave it anymore. Well, people like that, I do kind of want to, like, you know, I, I'm not going to say anything. Like that. I mean, because being a person who is fat for, for most of my adult life, you know, I mean, realizing at a certain point, because when you're in it and you're eating that stuff all the time, like he was saying before, you go to a buffet and you see these people going up, and a lot of people sort of laugh at it or think it's funny, they mock it or they make a moral judgment about it. But having been somebody who was in that, who was one of those people at the buffet, you just are not in a place where you can see that there are so many wonderful things in life to do, which eating is not is such a small part of your life and should be such a small part of your life. And for people who are who are compulsive eaters, eating is, you know, everything to them. It's something they do, something they look forward to. It's the only thing that assuages whatever it is. It fills the hole. It makes them feel better about themselves. And so you have these other people, oh, you live such a restrictive Life and I say, is it, yeah, but I used to not be able to, you know, go for a run or skateboard or do any of these other things because I was so fat. So you know what? I'm happy eating a restricted diet if it means I can do these five, ten, fifteen other things that fulfill me much more than food does. So I mean, like, I get a, I have a strong reaction to people who say that. <laughs> so why would be told these things, Doctor Rondell? Why why is it that the government keeps promoting grains so much and carbohydrates and that? Almost every single doctor you go see tells you about the balanced diet nowadays. And why is it that it's it's kept so, you know, separate from what should be? (laughs) Well, it's a combination of uh, bad science and uh, bad government. Uh (laughs) And uh, the bad science (laughs) I I talk about a little bit in the book, and it, it starts back with you know, feeding a vegetarian animal cholesterol and looking at heart disease, and it moves on to, uh, I think, one of the most important players is Ansel Keys, who wrote the Seven Nations Studies, wherein he yeah. correlated the consumption of saturated fat with heart disease. Um, and so that yeah. became that became a key piece that everybody quotes to, to say that saturated fat raises cholesterol, cholesterol causes heart disease, therefore we should eat no saturated fat. Mm-hmm. And um, the the sort of sad thing that nobody paid attention to at the time, well, some people did and raised objections, but got overruled. 
and that is that he had data from 22 countries, and he cherry-picked the seven that met his preconceived notion. And Mm -hmm. even over and above that, on page 256 of this seven-country study, he admits that there's a correlation between the consumption of carbohydrates and heart disease. But he, he, he covers it up by saying, well, when they ate more carbohydrates, they also ate more saturated fat. Therefore, it's the saturated fat and not the carbohydrates that's causing heart disease. So he, he, he had a fundamental bias, um, mm-hmm. and he ignored the data and manipulated the data. And um, I, I, God rest his soul, he's dead now, but um, I think he bears responsibility for this epidemic of obesity and diabetes. In part, I, I think it is interesting that um, the power that scientists have today to to cause damage in people's lives is really actually sometimes a bit scary and horrifying. That the the, the, the casual self interest of, of one man, or even maybe it was just a psychological kind of like you know he just liked his carbohydrates and just couldn't admit it or whatever it was. But I mean, there's a lot of suffering in the world because of that. Oh, oh, oh yes. And, uh, you know, George McGovern, the senator that uh, chaired the Senate Committee in the United States that issued the dietary guidelines, um, also recently passed away. But uh, uh, that committee um, was just as guilty of bias. They they hired a a vegetarian, a a vegan, as a matter of fact, to write the report. They they were completely biased. They ignored ignored the the protests of many, many scientists. that this wasn't the answer, that fat wasn't the problem, and that uh, replacing fat, uh, replacing saturated fat with uh, vegetable oils uh, wasn't the answer, and that replacing fat of any kind with carbohydrates wasn't the answer. Uh, but they, they, he, he's famously quoted as saying, we don't have time for all the science to come in. We have to do something now. Yeah, the science is settled. Let's just get on with it. And what they got on with was recommending... A low-fat diet, the very thing, it would seem, that has been uh, central to causing this explosion in heart disease, diabetes, and everything else. That, that's just insane. Absolutely um, insane. And if you... It, one more thought about the compulsion. Never, ever have I seen a compulsive eater going for the butter or going for the cream or going for the sauces. They're going mm-hmm. for the cars. No. Yep. Never once. You, you, you hit your limb, you, you find satiation, and you leave it. You get on with other things. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I was, I, I was going to ask you. How, after reading, after reading your article, my first thought was, how did it all go wrong? We, we've touched on it here. Um, I mean, the influence of one guy, in particular Ansel Keys. But I mean, from there, there was science being done in parallel that contradicted this idea but still we even to this day even when there is more information that directly contradicts such as the information that you've pulled together it's still the the, the dominant idea that you need a balanced diet you need a low fat diet um it just it just staggers belief that they can still be recommending this in the face of the evidence that it's so tragically wrong <laughs> Uh, it's tragically wrong that we keep recommending it, um, um, and uh, unfortunately, it involves um, in this day and age. Um, 
it involves money. And I, uh, I think that um, in a couple of years that we will see um, PhD theses in business uh, analyzing how the drug makers uh, influenced uh, regulation to such that uh, everybody now needs a, a statin medication. Uh, it was yeah. absolutely brilliant. It, it wasn't out-and-out out bribery. It was much more subtle than that. They they would say, Dr. Lindell, we recognize you as a great authority in heart disease, and would you please give a talk and uh, you know, at a convention, and we'll pay your way and to a fancy place and uh, put you up, and and you can you can be the authority, and you educate your colleagues on the evils of cholesterol and the benefits of taking this medication. Well, um, that's irresistible to a lot of people. And uh, if if I'm a university researcher and my tenure and my salary depends on research grants, and I can go to a big drug company and say, look, I need $100 million to do X, Y study, and uh, if they think I'm influential, then I get $100 million, and that gives me a huge amount of power. And uh, and then I right. get my buddies who agree with me, and together we sit on the National Cholesterol Education Panel, and we make all the That's recommendations. Just, uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you cite my papers, I'll cite yours. You know, but uh, that, that really that really makes me angry. You know, the whole thing about statins, and I'm hoping you will say something more about this because there's an, an amazing amount of people who take statins for life. Dr. Lundell has written that a quarter of all Americans are, yeah. are taking statins. And I mean, the a list quarter. of side effects when you know you can fix. Okay, you you mentioned that one thing that that statins will do is reduce inflammation, right? Maybe. 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 That's not even <laughs> proven. That's no. not even not proven. Even proven no. All their claims it about is. reducing heart diseases, it's false, right? Yes, absolutely false. Absolutely. Okay, so they've been lying to the public, and we see people with Alzheimer's with with like serious, serious problems, memory loss, uh, what else, diabetes, anything. How come that they keep lying to people and that people are just, you know, is it... It just well, makes me uh, sorry, but... I think somebody did a little film recently. Uh, I don't remember the title, but at any rate, there's 30 billion reasons to recommend statins. Uh-huh. Bernie Madoff, the famous fraudster in this country, uh, is in jail for cheating people out of 30 billion over 30 years. With his Ponzi scheme. What's your Ponzi scheme? Well, we spend more than 30 billion uh, in the United States alone, no, worldwide, on statins. And we spend another $100 million on testing and doctor visits. And we recommend statins to healthy people. It's become, in the United States, a standard of care. And with the electronic medical record, if I'm a doctor and I don't recommend statins to someone who shows up on that record with a high cholesterol, then I've fallen below the standard of care and I'm guilty of malpractice. And if that person should have a heart attack for some reason or another then they would come after me for liability for that. So that's how deep and how dark um, this has become in that I'm almost breaking the law if I don't prescribe it to you, whether I believe it or not. Jesus so, Christ, never mind that it's associated to third, uh, 300 diseases. Well, listen, uh, there's some recent evidence that statins cause an increase in the rate of diabetes. Yeah. So if we have 25 million people in this country with on statins, 
and 10% of them get new diabetes. That's 2.5 million cases of new diabetes. If there was something in our water that caused 10% of the people to get diabetes, we'd, we'd go to the ends of the earth to get rid of that compound, whatever it was. And yet, we punish our doctors if they don't prescribe this other poison. And my very first professor in heart surgery always called them liver poisons, statins, because mm-hmm. that's exactly what they do. They prevent the liver from producing uh, cholesterol by by inhibiting an enzyme. So he called them liver poisons, and uh, I always liked that. And as far as I understand, they deplete uh, your body of coenzyme Q10, right? CoQ10, which is yes, like the most beneficial thing for your heart health. One of the most, yes. Uh-huh. Unbelievable. Juliana, you were saying earlier today that someone has suggested we start pumping statins into the drinking water. Yeah, there was a UK scientist, I don't know if you've heard about that, Dr. Wandel, that they, they were saying that uh, statins should be put in the drinking water. <laughs> yes, I've heard that. And uh, there also was, uh, it's been around, the idea been around for a long time about a poly pill, you know, which would, would take an aspirin and a statin and a uh, low-dose blood pressure medicine that everyone should take it. Well, sort of the sad thing is that statistically, um, I mean, there's the, the nice-looking pharmaceutical rep, uh, the young lady with uh, more than ample bosoms had come to my office to bring me uh, articles about statins. And, and of course, most of the doctors read the abstract, and, uh, and who can even concentrate on the abstract with an attractive young lady there? Tell me about the benefits of uh, these, this statin over that statin. <clears throat> but over and above the uh, the crass nature of uh, humanity, but <laughs> uh, it, it's just that nobody reads the data, and we think it's authoritative because it came from a university. And um, little did we know, did we know that they really had to work hard to manipulate the statistics? I don't know mm-hmm. if you've ever heard the, the term p hacking. No. Nope. Well, well, the p-value is a statistical term, meaning it's statistically significant. Uh-huh. And so if you play around with the numbers long enough, you can get it to be statistically significant. And uh, so that's what's called p-hacking. If you, if you play with the numbers long enough, then you can get what's called statistically significant. Well, the sad thing is that uh, that then is interpreted to be a significant difference. What to you and me is significant difference is black versus white or sick versus healthy. But to a statistician, a significant difference means that it's more likely than random chance to be correlated. Okay. That's all statistically significant means. More likely than not. 51% as opposed to 50 uh, and a coin flip. Uh, Yes, basically, or, you know... More likely than not to be, 51% likely to be not a random circumstance. Wow. So when you see, and then they also invented this term called relative risk, uh, which <laughs> which changes it. If, if, if uh, I drive with the, the windscreen of my car, how do you like that? We're throwing in a British term. <laughs> Instead of windshield. Anyway, if I if I drive with a dirty windscreen windshield, and my chance of of uh, a wreck are uh, if I drive with a clean one, it's one in a hundred. If I go a, a year, then uh, I have one wreck. 
if I have a dirty windshield, I have uh, two wrecks. So you would say I doubled the risk of a heart of a uh, wreck by having a dirty windshield. The relatively risk the relative risk is doubled. The yeah. actual risk is that I'm only have one percent more chance. <laughs> but it, by calling it relatively risk, it suddenly becomes fifty percent. And this is the way it is with statins. You know, you see the Lipitor ad, 39% less chance of a heart attack. Well, that's relative risk. It means that um, um, that's just what it means. If you take a 1,000 patients and put them on statins, um, one will have a heart attack. If you take a 1,000 patients and put them on, on uh, no statins, then two will have a heart attack. The, the difference is explained by lots of other factors besides statins. And yet we say, look, you've lowered your risk by 50%. Who wouldn't want to take this? But you haven't really because... (laughs) (laughs) No, you haven't. You've changed it from uh, 1% to 2%. Uh, And the likelihood of that is only 2%. But let me ask you, uh, this might be a a stupid question, but, um, you know, there's a lot of people who have supposedly, they're told that they have to take statins for life. Now, is it possible that somebody who gets informed and and stops or reduces their carbohydrate intake and everything might be able to get off these drugs without any problems? Because that's an argument that I come across very often. You know, well, I can't stop them now because I have to. I'm, I I got a stent and I can't stop the medication. Or the doctor told me that it was better to reduce it by half but keep taking it. Is that true, or is it still part of the whole? Propaganda for statins. Uh, uh, I call it a, a, a manufacturer's dream. If I can make a product that you need to take the rest of your life, exactly. That's what I'm thinking. I've suddenly got an annuity uh, that I don't have to renew. I have an annuity forever. Once again, the only evidence that statins help anybody is in a very limited population, and I have some questions about whether that data is valid, but. Uh, even, um, uh, I mean, an honest uh, physician or scientist will tell you that middle-aged males with previous heart attacks have some benefit from statins. There is, and that you can't deny that n- it has never, ever been proved in any other population to be of any benefit. Except in people who have had a tar- heart attack, middle-aged men, right? That's what you're Correct. Saying. That's the only population where there is a statistically significant difference in the outcome, and the outcome means uh, heart attack or death from heart disease. But at what cost? And have these people uh, who make part of this, this, uh, you know, conclusion have been off carbs? I mean, uh, is it really scientifically proven? Is it really has it been compared to a low carb diet? And is it safe to let go of them if you if you're willing to? Oh, of course it's safe. I mean, uh, unless you're in that population of a middle-aged male, and I don't think you'll ever get there. Um, <laughs> no, not you. <Deanna. laughs> you don't need a satin. <laughs> uh, but the question being is, if you're a middle-aged male, okay, giving you this, you're a middle-aged male, uh, or, or a later middle-aged male. I mean, you've, been, and you've, had, you've had a heart, you've had a, one or two heart attacks. You had a stent put in, and you've been prescribed statins for life. There you are, popping your pills every day, popping along. Suddenly, 
you get this idea in your head, you know what, I don't want to take them anymore. I'm going to try this other thing where I will stop, I'll manage my diet, manage my, my stress and everything like that. Um, you know, cut out the processed foods, cut out the carbohydrates, cut out the gluten, cut all these other things. Can you well, actually stop taking statins at that point? Like if you've if you've committed to doing something else and you've started to see some health benefits from cutting out gluten and cutting out carbs, and then can you stop taking the statins or will you like drop that immediately? Okay, let me ask you a question then to answer your question. If cholesterol is not the cause of heart disease, how stupid is it to take a medication to lower your cholesterol? and subject yourself to all the side effects from that medicine. Well, exactly. That's what I'm saying. I mean, even the argument that middle-aged men uh, with a history of a heart attack would need this medication sounds crazy to me because there are, there is a much more natural solution. Okay, it's proven to have some effects, but did it have effects on people who were already making changes in their diet? Or are we talking about the guy who had a heart attack and still keeps eating at McDonald's? Well, I, yeah, I'll, I'll go back to my statement. If if cholesterol is not the cause of heart disease, then lowering cholesterol is completely idiotic. Mm-hmm. Completely right. idiotic. And so, before before we uh, leave, I want to come back. We talked about some fundamental biology of of how the cholesterol got in the wall of the blood vessel, and we talked about carbohydrates. But sometime in this conversation, I want to get down to the biology of the endothelial cell and see if we can figure out whether sugar hurts it or not and how it does, how it might. All right, well, let's go there. Let's dive in. (laughs) Okay, well, uh, there's a... uh, I'll mispronounce the French, I'm sure, but uh, there's a term (laughs) called milieu interior. Perfect. Uh, Did I do okay? Yeah, And it means means internal environment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the other word we use for that is homeostasis. That means that we like things to be, our body likes things to be stable. We control our temperature, for example, in a very narrow range. And we work very hard to make that temperature in a very narrow range. We, um, if you don't, if you, if you don't believe that we have a strong desire to keep our carbon dioxide and oxygen, in a very narrow range in our blood, just hold your breath for a few minutes. Yeah. See how strong the body's desire is to keep those levels normal. Mm-hmm. If our potassium, if our sodium, for example, gets uh, too low, we die. If it gets too high, we get really sick. And the, the range is relatively narrow. Uh, same for potassium. Same for lots of things. So the body likes to control all these things in a very narrow range. Uh, glucose is one of these things that it likes to control in the very narrow range. So we'll go to the basics of blood sugar control. And that is when we consume carbohydrates, our pancreas senses an elevated blood sugar and produces a hormone called insulin. Insulin then triggers a glucose transporter to transport the glucose inside of the cells. The primary purpose being to control the level of sugar in the blood, glucose. We'll, we'll use the term uh, interchangeably. It might not be 100% accurate, but we'll use it interchangeably. And so when the glucose comes back within the normal range, the pancreas stops making insulin. 
If the blood sugar goes a little too low, the pancreas senses that as well and makes a hormone called glucagon. Glucagon tells the liver, take some of this glucose that you stored and converted into glycogen, convert it back to glucose and let it go into the bloodstream so we keep the blood glucose in a relatively narrow range. So those two hormones fundamentally control the level of sugar in our blood, even though we eat carbohydrates intermittently. Mm-hmm. Now, there are uh, insulin-sensitive glucose transporters. It's called a GLUT4. And it's most predominant in the liver and the muscle and in the fat. And these are the big reservoirs. If you go out and have a... Let's see, yesterday was National Donut Day in the United States. So if you got to have two or three donuts... Oh, God. <laughs> was it really? Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. And if you got to have two or three donuts, uh, uh, that that glucose is going to go into your liver until it's full, and then the liver is going to make fat out of it, and then it's going to go into your muscle until they're full, and they're going to say no more. And then all the rest has got to go to the fat cells uh, to be stored in uh, relatively long-term storage. And um, those cells have a GLUT4, which is very sensitive to insulin. Now, many other cells are not. um, They have glucose transporters that are not insulin sensitive. And critically, one of these cells happens to be the endothelial cell, which lines our blood vessels, all 60,000 miles of them. This endothelial cell, the glucose inside is the same as the glucose in the bloodstream because it can't say no. So what happens when we get too much glucose inside the cell? We get what's called, well, let's back up and uh, and say that we turn, I mean, life really is... uh, if you want to make it back to simple chemistry, plants take sunshine and um, carbon dioxide and water and make energy. Mm -hmm. And we take, and the energy is glucose, because that's what plants make. In 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 simple molecules all the way to fiber and all the way to seashells, for example, or carbohydrate. But at any rate... Then humans take, uh, and animals, uh, we take that glucose that the plant has produced and uh, we extract some energy and we produce carbon dioxide and water. That's, you know, that's fundamentals of life are that simple chemical equation. But when we make, when we take glucose and uh, produce energy out of it, we move electrons from one molecule to another. It's called oxidative phosphorylation. (laughs) And in that process, we always end up with molecules with an extra electron. That molecule is called a free radical. And those free radicals, if they're not neutralized pretty quickly by removing that electron or adding another so as a total pair, actually that's what happens is we add another to to pair it up, um, that molecule becomes toxic and damages cells. And this mitochondrion, they produce these free radicals all the time and at a certain nice homeostatic level, everything is controlled. The free radicals are neutralized. Think of it as a Mm -hmm. furnace in your house at the winter. Your house is nice and toasty. There's a nice little controlled fire down there. Someone comes along and dumps a bunch of gasoline on that fire. It becomes an out-of-control fire and it's a mess. 
That's what happens when we dump all the glucose into the endothelial cells. Mm-hmm. We have a mess. And, an internal fire, and, inflammation. And An internal fire, inflammation, absolutely very good. Now, think about diabetes, which is characterized by high blood sugars and the unique set of complications that go along with diabetes. And they are blindness, kidney failure, limb amputations, and premature death from heart disease. So Mm -hmm. diabetes is sort of the extreme example of what happens to everybody when they have high blood sugars from our high-carbohydrate diet. And it all Mm -hmm. goes, goes back to two things. One is the oxidative stress that occurs, and we just overload our little energy factory. And as a function of overloading is it ends up with bad byproducts, and those bad byproducts are free radicals, and those, I mean, the experiment's been done. We take a endothelial cells in a, in a chamber and expose them to high glucose, and you see them curl up, and you see them change shape. They no longer make the same chemicals they did. That's called endothelial dysfunction. So they don't work anymore. And uh, so fundamentally, uh, you, we watch the telly in the United States at least, and there's 15 ads for ED uh, that would be erectile dysfunction. Erectile but dysfunction. Really, <laughs> really, it's endothelial dysfunction that's causing the erectile yeah. dysfunction. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so my talk, well, I gave a couple of talks recently. ED, no, not that ED. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, so when you think about the fact that the endothelium controls our blood flow, whether it clots or not, what goes through it, what it passes back into the blood, when we have endothelial dysfunction, we have lots of other dysfunctions, and it can be subtle, and it can take a long time to happen. Now, uh, in the article, I talked about a, a sunburn or a wound where you did a wire brush. Well, I'll use a sunburn example. You can go out and get a sunburn once, and it, next day, it's day and a half later, it's healed. But if you get that sunburn six times a day for 30 years, your skin will be a mess. So my statement is that we're sunburning, we're injuring the lining of our blood vessels every time we have an overdose of carbohydrates. And over time, this causes those blood vessels to have inflammation, to scar up, and this is why the blood vessels in the eye go closed and I go blind. This is why the blood vessel in the kidney closes and I can't make urine anymore, and it's why the little tiny vessels in my toes plug up and I get a foot ulcer and then I get an amputation, and it's why um, plaque builds up in the coronary arteries. It's... uh, Is this also related to problems with blood circulation? Yes, when when the endothelium doesn't work, then the blood vessels can't dilate or contract, so that gives us hypertension. Yeah. Uh huh. Now there I've there are about- other things. There are other. Let's be honest. There are other things besides sugar that can in, that injure the endothelium. Um, cigarette smoking, for example. Um, you know, we know that. Um, other well. chemicals of one kind or another, and bacteria, and all sorts of things can do it, but. Uh, the most common injury that we get, and some things we can control and some things we can't, the most common injury we get is hyperglycemia or high blood sugar. Yeah. So fundamentally, you... if you can control that one, then uh, then you can work on the rest. I got I got a I got a small question. Um, so 
I'm I'm a contrary person, to be quite honest. I mean, you know that. You, you, you've probably met people like me before. Uh, when somebody says uh, everybody knows something, I'm the first person to say I don't. So, uh, okay. <laughs> because uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm just that way. It's it's part of my personality. So when you say that that everyone knows that smoking damages such and such, and uh, my first response is, well, I don't know it. So so maybe you could tell me a little bit about that. Oh, okay. And um, actually, thank you for calling on me that calling me on that, because that's not something a scientist ought to say. Is everybody knows. Ah. Yeah. Okay. So, so thank you for uh, for insisting on that. Uh, let's keep this down to science and fundamental biology. Uh, actually, those experience, experiments have been done. We we take uh, we measure endothelial function by uh, what's called flow mediated dilatation, or we put a cuff on the arm and blow it up and stop the circulation for a little while, and we open it up and we see how much bigger the blood vessel got and how much more flow occurs. Uh, so if you uh, if you do the test and have a certain amount of flow, and then you smoke a cigarette, and you will have less flow. I see. What okay, kind so of cigarette we, did you smoke? Uh, a Galois. Whatever the a Galois. Galois. Oh yeah. dear. Oh god. <laughs> oh, that's a bad it doesn't. Story. <laughs> it doesn't make much. <laughs> uh, at any rate, we also look under the microscope and expose the, the cells to those things, or we we take an animal and we smoke and we then look microscopically at the blood, blood vessels. And so when I say everybody knows, that's incorrect. The, the data is in demonstrating that the chemicals in cigarette smoke damages mm-hmm. endothelial cells. Okay, so we agree that it's the chemicals. It's not, it hasn't been proven that it's tobacco per se, right? No, it, it's you know, and I, right. I don't know if we've isolated exactly which one. I don't think it's the nicotine, for example. It's it's mm-hmm. the other things that come from burning. Well, here's the thing that makes me very sensitive about that. Um, there's a thing called the Truth Campaign. I don't know if it's still going on. Do you remember that? It was it was years ago in the U.S. When I was growing up, there was something called the Truth Campaign, and they basically got like poppy-looking kids from Abercrombie and Fitch, and they would like run around and do these things, telling people about how cigarettes are going to kill them. And one of the things they did is they created this big billboard and they put a list of all the chemicals that are inside of a cigarette. And there was things, there was a lot of things like formaldehyde, arsenic, and a couple of other number of chemicals that actually are kind of like everyone knows are, are listed as being like toxic chemicals. And, and I was like, well, did they grow on the plant? No. And so they had this big list of all these chemicals. And then a few years back, there was this brand of tobacco that came out called American Spirit. And um, they their big thing was that it was all natural tobacco grown by Indians on the reservation or whatever it is, right? And that was their whole thing. But the Surgeon General made them put a little a little disclaimer on them that says that just because it's natural tobacco does not constitute a safer cigarette. And I said, no, hold on a second. If I have a choice between two glasses of water, one of those glasses has one drop of arsenic and the other one has half full of arsenic, one of those glasses is safer for me to drink just by virtue of there being less of a poison in it, right? I mean, it's just pure logic. You know, if I had to drink one of those, I would pick the one with one drop of arsenic as opposed to half full of it, right? I mean, because I'm, I have the ability to think. So that immediately kind of like alerted my contrary, wait a minute, hold on a second, that's not right, that's not logical. 
And, and so that makes me very sensitive about it because, you know, people will say, well, we did this study with cigarettes. And I said, yeah, but there's like 80 brands of cigarettes. Which one did you use? Yes. <laughs> and then they'll say, uh, I'll say it, 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 it's important, you know. What, what was in the cigarette? Was it just pure nicotine? Did you inject the nicotine in and see what happened? You know, so, yeah, that, that, I, I get really sensitive about that. <laughs> oh, well, I think you're absolutely correct there. And uh, and once again, the it's sort of big brother, big government uh, preaching at us. Uh, all the, you know, the data on secondhand smoke, I think, is pretty dubious. Um, although there, well, the there might be something to it, but um, can I say? And you're correct. That. That, go ahead. About about the whole secondhand, the, the, this whole thing that secondhand smoke is worse than the first, right? That was this mantra that they had for years, <laughs> and it's so idiotic because if I'm in a room and I'm smoking a cigarette with somebody who's not smoking a cigarette. I'm getting the first hand and the second hand. So second hand smoke cannot be worse than the first because I'm getting both. And the other person's only getting the second hand. So that it's illogical. It's just the product of a sure. puerile ignorant mind. Well, doctor, we have to confess that we're four people sitting here at the studio and the four of us are smoking. But we promise we're smoking 100% natural tobacco. <laughs> and so we're kind of, it's kind of a sensitive topic, and we, we do deal with it, and we have done some research about it. And it's, it's, it's really amazing how, you know, the whole propaganda about smoking started. And, and there's doctors even like you, you know, who said, I've, I've opened thousands of lungs. And we have here, we have one here, Neil was reading it earlier, and, and, and she says, you know, it's not possible in any way to distinguish between the lung of a smoker and a non-smoker, you know, and it's and it's true, you know, it's it's part of this, in my opinion, it's part of this government campaign, and and if they care so much about our health and they're you know bombarding us with things about smoking, why don't they talk about carbs? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, not too long ago we couldn't talk about smoking. Mm-hmm. Because well, I, tobacco was so influential with their lobby, and until uh, Hitler came surgeon, along, uh, so uh, big tobacco controlled the conversation until the uh, until, um, until the data on cancer and whatnot became uh, until became carbs so and drugs became more important. So big sugar and uh, big soda are now the big tobacco. And in fact, uh, mm-hmm. Gary Taubes and another woman have just in Mother Jones recently did an article on expose expose on uh, the data that big sugar had hidden about uh, how they tried to influence regulation, and they were part of this this process. Ansel Keys got big grants from uh, the Sugar uh, Association to do studies, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, and, and so, once again, the, the same thing that went on with uh, a big farm in promoting uh, uh, statins, uh, uh, Big Sugar has done for years. And the nice thing is there's beginning to be some sensitivity because Coca-Cola has got all these ads now uh, about happiness in children and sharing and trying to say that their uh, that, oh, yeah. that, uh, their product is not as, as happy and good and all those kind of things. This is the same product they clean Chevy engines with? <laughs> <laughs> there is there is a lot of research out there that uh, frankly counters the assumption people have when it comes to tobacco smoking. <coughs> One thing that's very interesting that it ties into our discussion today is that 
smoking tobacco is anti-inflammatory. Pure tobacco. Hmm. Oh, I haven't um, seen that one, but uh, that's interesting. Um, not all uh, not all smokers die prematurely. Only about uh, 20% do. I think I mentioned yeah. that in the book. Um, I, uh, I've never been a smoker except, uh, you know, as a teenager, but... Uh, 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 I, I wonder if we make an informed if we make an informed choice, mm-hmm. knowing a risk, then we ought to be free to make that choice. Exactly. But what's yeah. happened with sugar is that we 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 didn't get a chance to make exactly. an informed choice. We still don't have an informed choice. If you choose to be obese and hyperglycemic, as long as you know that you're going to be sick and unhealthy and die prematurely. I don't care how much you eat or how much you, you know. Yeah. All the rest, as long as you assume the risk. And unfortunately, I have to pay for that risk because I'm part of the insurance pool that pays for your uh, illnesses. And so, in in a in a real way, I'm subsidizing your bad choices. Now, I'll admit that you don't have the information to know that it's a bad choice. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And this and this I'm thinking is what is motivating you today to tell people, to educate people about this issue. You you realize that people are not informed because they don't have choices before them. And this is what motivates you to get them thinking about what's really going on here. Namely that their diet is the key to understanding what is wrong with them. And not just you, of course, you've come from the background of of being a heart specialist. But uh, I think it's clear from our conversation today that you've realized that all these things are connected. I mean, just about every ailment can be tracked back to the same fundamental underlying problems. Um. I think it's great that you're you're doing this, you know, and uh, I, I really just wish more people would. I, I'm sure there must be others who have been there, done that, uh, who are, you do have access to the real science, so to speak. Um, I just wish more people would speak out like you have. Uh, and not get as much as, uh, as much attack as you have too, right? <laughs> Uh, right, uh, you know, uh, there's a, a British doctor by the name of John Yudkin who wrote a book uh, called uh, Pure, White, and Deadly. And um, Ansel Keys and all his supporters destroyed him, his reputation, uh, mm-hmm. uh, because he dared say it was carbohydrates and not fat that was causing these illnesses. And, and his book, Pure, White, and Deadly, uh, you know, it's... It's not as fun as reading a novel, but it's it's good and contains the information that that uh, that he knew and he presented this and he and a bunch of other people tried to to uh, bring this out when we were making the dietary guidelines, but they once again got overwhelmed by uh, by Keys and his allies and uh, and big government. Well, you yeah. know, I'm I'm a big fan of juxtaposition. Just you know, to understand something. I mean, back in the back in the days of the Enlightenment, when when science was still called like natural philosophy, one of the one of the big problems that everybody had was that 
they were making observations in the real world, things were happening, and the church wasn't really able to explain them. And when people tried to explain them, they did things like put them on trial for heresy and you know, punish them in various different ways, and that kind of led to a, a revolution against the church. And you see today that you have almost the exact same problem, but in reverse. You have uh, people who are making observations about reality, about the world, about the health of people, and you've got scientists, scientists who are, you know, half of them burying their head in the sand, and the other half of them are in this Eichmann-esque kind of position where they're just sort of signing the papers that are sending people off to the health concentration camps in a certain sense. I mean, just basically sending people to their deaths, and we all say, oh, it's understandable because they want money. Well, no, it's not understandable. I mean, if you sign a piece of paper and a lot of people die, kill them. It doesn't matter if you did it with a pen or if you did it with a knife or you did whatever, you know, you're responsible. When you tell lies to get money that lead to people's deaths, then you've done something fundamentally evil. And so that's you know that's kind of the way I see this whole situation. And I wanted to get your opinion on that. That the, the kind of the situation that we find ourselves in is that science has become a very religious organization with a kind of a priesthood that then uh, puts people on trial. Sometimes actually quite real. People do get put on trial when they when they when they dissent and speak out and say, hey, the observations are wrong. Um know the, the earth doesn't travel around the sun in a certain sense. And then they're put on trial for various different things and they're, you know, slandered and driven sometimes even to their deaths or to suicide or other other types of things. So what do you think about that? <laughs> I think that's abs- I think that's brilliant actually. Uh I had the privilege of having dinner with uh with Dr. Robert Atkins' widow a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And there was testimony in Congress that he was uh, that he was killing people. And he, mm-hmm. he, uh, he endured withering attacks from his colleagues in medicine in general uh, for, for trying to repopularize uh, reduced carbohydrates and saying that uh, the fat wasn't uh, damaging now, um, you know, the other amusing thing to illustrate your point is that uh, I watched a video of a, a big conference on insulin levels, and there's a whole lot of thing diseases associated with high insulin levels. So mm-hmm. these researchers are going on and on and on about insulin levels and this disease and insulin levels and that disease, and I'm screaming at the screen and say, "Yo, what is it that causes high insulin levels?" Seriously. Nobody would exactly. nobody would dare say the G word, you know, glucose. <laughs> nobody would dare say exactly. it. And so this illustrates your point of the priesthood of science. And we, you know, if you dare say that uh, the globe is not warming, uh, you're you're a denier. And if you say um, mm-hmm. if you say uh, fat's not harmful, like I do, then I'm a fat denier, and yeah. uh, I'm discredited. I'm uh, reviled and. Um, and all the rest, but uh, there's a nice quotation that says, in a time of universal deceit, speaking the truth is a revolutionary act. Yeah. yeah. George or, Orwell. Yeah. George or Orwell. It's, uh, it's dangerous to be right in, in matters where the established authorities are wrong. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yep. It still applies today. I mean, they, they'll hit you in different ways, of course, right. but it's the same as ever. Yeah, I mean, I think that the problem is is that we, we've always tried to solve the solution by turning over authority to different sets of people. 
you know, first of we, we turned it over to the authority of kings, and then they kind of screwed us over. And so then we said, oh, well, and I'm going to turn the authority over to this, over to religion, turn the authority over to science. And each time we just keep turning the authority and the responsibility for making informed decisions and getting ourselves informed over to other people. You know, we, we want a scientist to tell us, or a doctor to tell us, you know, what's true or what's false. And I think that the lesson that people should take away from it, I mean, it'll probably take us another 10,000 years before we actually figure this one out, but if we survive that long. But basically that you have to make your own choices pretty much and that if you keep turning over things to a, a select group of, of people, uh, of an authority, you're you're just going to get led down the primrose path into, into pain and suffering. And, you know, how many people a day or die from heart attacks or heart disease or something like that? What was it, 2,000? Some I think you said 2,500 deaths per day? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 2000, so, I mean, almost as many people as died on 9-11 die every day from a heart attack. And then people are all like, oh, let's get the Muslim terrorists. But nobody's like saying, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, modern... Yeah, how about the dietary terrorists, you know? Yeah, the dietary <laughs> yeah, how about the, yeah, how about uh, we uh, search out the uh, American Dietetic Association? Uh, right. Yeah, they're, they're yeah. killing people. Heart you know? Association, yeah. and the, uh, for example, you know the Di- American Diabetes Association, they still recommend a high carbohydrate diet. I mean, they they list all the things that carbs do bad, and then they say, but you still need sixty percent of your calories from carbohydrates. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I've given up on things making that, sense. It's one of the things, by the way, going back to the to the idea that people have the power, it's one of the things I really enjoyed about your book is that, you know, you do say the public is are the only people who have the power to change the system. And that's what we're trying to do in these radio shows and um, and in Saw.net and everywhere. So we'd really like to recommend your book. By the way, listeners, the book is called The Cure for Heart Disease. Truth Will Save a Nation by Dr. Dwight Lundell and Todd Nordstrom. So you can get it on Amazon. It's on Kindle as well. Um, uh, yeah, you can also... Uh, you have a you have a website, Dr. Lundell? Uh, Thecureforheartdisease.net, although we don't. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not very good at uh, posting a, a lot of new information. There's a... Mm-hmm. Um, you guys are way better at that than I am, <laughs> getting information <laughs> well, and truth out, and I appreciate the opportunity to to have been on with you today and uh, try to spread a little truth. Well, you did the research. We just spread the the word, so. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Dr. Lundell. Um, before we... Um, you you want to... Before we finish... Um, uh, you mentioned the omega-6 overload in the book, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of people who don't know really about it, about the ratio. Could you tell us a little bit more about it for our listeners? Yes. Um, and trans fats? When when we uh, published and promulgated the um, dietary guidelines for Americans and then it spread around the world, uh, it we were told to reduce our consumption of saturated fats, and if we wanted... Uh, some oils, we should replace them with uh, vegetable oils, which would be soybean and corn oil and, to a certain extent, canola and other seed oils. Um, and these oils contain uh, an essential free fatty acid called uh, omega-6. 
and all of our cell membrane, the cell membrane is really uh, two layers of lipid with some proteins in there, so it's called a bilipid layer. And lipid is fat, so our cell membranes are fat, and the cell membranes control what goes in and what goes out and how our cells function and all the rest. If we have too much omega-6 in our system, then these cell membranes don't function properly, and they produce pro-inflammatory uh, chemicals that aggravate this process and all the rest of the th disorders that are based on inflammation. And in fact, if we get right, <laughs> I'm laughing because the United Nations is now calling all of these things uh, non-communicable diseases. Once again, mm -hmm. as if they're putting a name on it and thinking we understand it better. And I think they're yeah. idiots. Yeah. We're pathetic for listening to them. Nevertheless, I, I would be so bold as to propose that inflammation is the fundamental cause of aging, uh, premature aging, uh, and even cancers, because it ends up disturbing our homeostasis and reducing the length of our chromosomes, the telomeres, uh, causing all kinds of perturbations in our uh, cellular functions, which then one of those cells is going to start reproducing abnormally because its chromosome has been shortened by inflammation. And so I think all of these things are, are related to chronic low-grade inflammation, and once again, that can come from lots of places, but the predominant cause in today's world, the predominant source of chronic inflammation today is hyperglycemia. It's aggravated and accelerated when we overload our bodies with omega-6 from vegetable oils, once again, the official government recommendation. I was amused to see somebody go back and get the data from Australia, the study is almost 30 years old, where they said that omega-6s were better than saturated fat. Well, it turns out that a reanalysis of the data shows that that's not actually true. In fact, I don't know. Uh, um, unfortunately, I don't have it with me. One of the recent studies about fat, you know, the conclusion was um, fats are bad for you. And, and they had a little, you know, star there at the end. And if you actually follow the links, you end up finding out that the uh, the studies they were doing were based on trans fats. But the conclusion yeah. that they used to promote, you know, the whole low-fat thing was fats are bad for you. Well, of course, you're using modified fats. You're using a uh, huge amount of omega-6s. You're using a molecule that is almost closer to plastic than to oil. That's correct. And, you know, so the... For your listeners, uh, you know, and back, back to the, and I want to ask you some questions about the ketogenic diets, but uh, uh, we need to go back go to the way that great-grandmother ate, you know, with uh, mm -hmm. bacon grease or yeah. lard at this yeah. side and uh, cooking with real food. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't want to eat anything with a barcode or somebody said, uh, think mm -hmm. out, you know, in terms of diet, think outside the box. And I said, pun intended, yeah, don't eat if it comes in a box. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> So, um, uh, fundamentally, we need to get back to natural uh, fats because there's more and more papers coming out every day that there is no correlation between saturated fat and heart disease. The linkage yeah. was always flimsy. The linkage was through cholesterol. And I think that we've destroyed the idea that cholesterol causes heart disease. Therefore, right. why would I avoid saturated fats? It, exactly. The linkage was weak, and now it's gone. Especially when you see that more and more people are getting sick and more and more people are following the low-fat diet. Yeah. 
So well, yeah, I was I was actually going to say something about his his out of the box thing. I was going to mention because when I got a, I spent like ten days in the hospital when I had the inflammation of my my colon. You know, I had was on multiple antibiotics and because it was just sort of non specified. He didn't know what it was. It's was, it was just you know terribly inflamed and terribly infected. Um, and it's basically because you know the the um, fibers and things like that, they seem to really irritate and they actually, they cause damage to the inside of the wall. It starts to become, you know, sort of bleeding and bloody like someone, you know, scrubbed it or whatever it is and that became infected. So that's why I was in the hospital for 10, for 10, 10 days and I, and I came out of the hospital and I said, well, I really have to get control of my eating. I have to learn to eat a new way. And uh, one of the ways that I did is I came up with something, you know, called the list and everything was about, you know, what is or is not allowed and, and basically it was, you know, nothing's allowed and one of the rules that was on the list was if it comes in a plastic container, if it, if it like you know sometimes you go down to the store and and you get meat and it's like wrapped in plastic. And one of the rules was that you know you can't eat food if it comes wrapped in plastic. You know, so yeah. I thought that that was you know. Yeah, good advice. Don't 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 eat anything you can get at the convenience market. Exactly. We you just know. haven't evolved for that. You know, it's just not. So yeah. what was it you wanted to ask us about the the ketogenic diet? Well, because our one, our I'm, listeners I'm, are asking actually, mm-hmm. they're sending yeah, us very interesting. Inter- very interested in it, and I just uh, spent a week with a man who's documented a one year uh, of staying in nutritional ketosis, and there's a triathlete who's going to try to compete uh, or complete Ironman Canada in August in ketosis. And since I enjoy, uh, maybe that's the wrong word, since I compete in (laughs) endurance events like uh, Ironman triathlons, I'm interested in trying to increase my performance by uh, uh, burning fat instead of carbohydrates or being so dependent on carbohydrates. So do you have any information about athletics and ketogenic diet? Yeah, actually. I see where this is going. Okay. So, like I said, I, I used to weigh like 340 pounds, lost a whole bunch of weight, stuff like that. And we decided that we were going to do some work around the yard. And I, I've notoriously throughout my entire life, I had no energy and no stamina for doing anything. And I went on to uh, the keto diet and stayed on it for, I was on it for like two and a half months straight. And we were doing this, and, and before that, I, I you know, couldn't get up in the morning, couldn't wake up. I had this low energy level, very low stamina when working out, very low stamina when going outside to, like, you know, rake the yard or do anything. And um, when I was on the ketogenic diet, I was getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I was working until about 7 o'clock at night straight, only stopping to have my, my little keto uh, meal and, uh, you know, just drinking lots of water, too, and other stuff, and was working constantly, very hard labor. And this is something that I had never really done before in my life. I reduced, I, I didn't have injuries, whereas normally, usually when I would try to do, like, yard work or we would, like, repair a wall or something like that, lifting things was really hard, I would constantly injure myself. And while I was doing this very hardcore ketosis, I I had one minor injury to my shoulder that's a recurring injury, but within like the next day, I just ran. I just took like a very, very cold shower. At the same time, I was taking the cold showers, doing this cold shower thing. I ran mm-hmm. cold water over the, the the injured shoulder. By the next day, it was better. 
and I was just able to keep on working and go, go, go. And I sustained that, you know, for, for two months straight. And uh, the only reason why I stopped doing all the work is because I had uh, an attack of my, my genetic disease that I had to go in for surgery. And then I spent like, you know, two months in a, in a, in a hyperbaric chamber and stuff. So, I mean, you know, but it was not to the, the ketogenic diet. It's just, you know, what I, what I have. So that's my story. Well, okay. I could I could maybe respond to that question with uh, with my experience because I was doing the paleo diet for um, about a year, probably probably about a year, and I noticed uh, I, I usually do workouts that I guess would be classified as resistance training. Um, now, don't get me wrong; I'm not I'm not an Iron Man like <laughs> <laughs> he is. The man is insane. That's, he is. That's a little bit too extreme <laughs> it for me. But so anyway, I was doing the Paleolithic diet, and I, I do resistance, uh, you know, weightlifting, but it's resistance training, so it's it's sort of short bursts of as many repetitions as you can with a higher weight until your muscles kind of give out. Then you do a short rest period, and then you move on to the next set of exercises, and I do, like, all the muscle groups in my body and that sort of thing. So while I was on the Paleo diet, I noticed that I seemed to have... Um, uh, all my my sort of blood sugar swings, as I called them, they they vanished. I used to become, uh, if if for example, I had to eat lunch at noon every day before paleo, and if I didn't have lunch at exactly noon, uh, I would start to get headaches. I would get irritable. I would be cranky. My stomach would start growling. I would get hunger pangs, and it was, you know, it was very, it was rather a rather severe reaction. And when I went paleo. All that stopped. Uh, I had high blood pressure. My blood pressure was normal. And I noticed that I had more energy for my workouts, but it wasn't... It was better, but it, was, it wasn't really amazing, I would say. Uh, okay. So then when I went to the ketogenic diet, uh, that was... That basically resulted in... Well, I, I, it, when I switched over to the ketogenic diet, I hadn't actually been working out. I'd been slacking off. So I was usually I would work out, you know, twice a week. By the time I switched to the ketogenic diet, um I was down to maybe once every two weeks I would work out. And so anyway, that made the result that much more amazing, which was that I switched over to ketosis and I pretty much instantly increased the amount of weight I could do by about twenty percent on most exercises. Um okay. so that's impressive. That, yeah, that that's the first thing. And the second thing I noticed was that uh, being on the ketogenic diet, I could be you know, doing something physically intense for most of the day, uh, you know, building something, whatever, uh, chopping wood, you know, that sort of thing. And at the end of the day, I would go, ah, geez, I was supposed to work out today. Well, yeah, what, what the heck? Let me let me go for it. And I would do a full workout. And then I would go to sleep, and I'd wake up the next morning, and I, I don't even have sore muscles anymore. Yeah. So there's there's also something. I mean, there's strength, and there's also something that it does to you for, in terms of endurance and the body's ability to, to heal itself or regenerate. I'm I'm not sure. I just know no, that it's, it's been rather phenomenal. Noticed, you know, because when once I came to France, you know, I, I got onto eating way too much carbs. You know, before that, I had been pretty you know, 
uh, energetic, even though I was very overweight. And then I had, you know, just completely tanked in my health because all I started was eating French baguettes and candies and ice creams and stuff. And croissant. And uh, once I switched over to paleo, things got better, lost a lot of weight, switched to ketosis, and really amazing results to, you know, I don't think I could really describe how awesome it was, actually. It's probably about 100 with uh, Do you measure with urine or blood, or do you just we did, try to avoid? Yeah, we, we measured with uh, with keto sticks, but they're not very reliable. You, you kind of get this weird smell, like an acetone kind of breath that lets you know that you're there. But um, you you feel the difference. I mean, it, you you know at a certain point because you feel the difference, and it just yeah. There, there is a transition phase. Yeah. To take in mind, I would not be trying it and then off off you go on a an Ironman competition because yeah, a, a lot of changes are taking place. If you think about the fact that well, our most of our evolution took place in a in nutritional ketosis state. Um. For you know, a hundred thousand years and more, three hundred thousand, I think. It was. Then, uh, to be spending the last hundred plus years addicted to sugar, and then to switch, you know, there's a, there is a transition phase. Yeah, one of the things that a lot of papers um, mention, and I'm I'm really looking forward to your opinion if you if you're interested. Um, is the difference between resistant training and aerobic training. And a lot of people apparently report a, a reduction in their um, efficiency when it comes to uh, aerobic exercise. Mm. But uh, but uh, and, but a, quite an impressive increase in, in terms of resistant training. Resistance, sorry. And uh, it seems to be related to the changes that have take place in the mitochondria. So um, if you're interested, that would be really, really, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to you, your opinion on the matter. Um, but there seems to be a, a very different, from the way the body uses the oxygen, a very marked difference between uh, uh, resistant training, which would be more like what our ancestors used to do. Sure. Yeah, short uh, bursts of activity that are right. forced on the, by the environment. Yeah. Um First of all, let me say that resistance training and short bursts of activity in terms of health and all sorts of things are probably way much, way smarter and certainly way more efficient in terms of time use than endurance events. Um, yeah. Uh, even though I got hooked on doing these endurance events for whatever reason. <laughs> At any rate, um, Everyone yeah, I think hobby. once the, there is not a lot of really hard data yet. Uh, Volek and Finney have written a book on low-carb performance, and they they have their theories about keto adaptation. And the, the experiment with uh, cyclists indicated that they didn't have a diminution in performance, but they didn't have yeah. an increase in performance. And the recent study with gymnasts um, shows that they actually did as well or maybe better in ketogenesis than they did um, uh, in a quote-unquote, uh, balanced diet. Um, and by the way, what's balanced about overdosing yourself with a toxic substance? Yeah, hmm. exactly. Uh, uh, anyway, so there's not a lot of data yet. And uh, um, one person yeah, in an experiment of one is uh, Peter Atia has done uh, been in keto nutritional ketosis for a little while, and his... Um, he actually, uh, depending on the level of exertion at 
you know, below aerobic threshold, he actually became considerably more efficient on his nutritional ketosis, but trying to be at uh, 100% peak uh, for sprinting and this kind of things, uh, it may not increase performance. But I don't think at this point in time we have data that once someone's adapted to ketogenesis, that it yeah. diminishes performance. Exactly. That's the yeah. thing I wanted to say. I read the the, the cyclist study on that, and I, I the first thing I noticed is that that they kind of did it at a very short period of time where they had the guys on ketosis, and they had been before that carb addicts anyway. They had been right. really doing the the carb stuff, and then they dropped them off that. Said here, go on ketosis. Does it increase it? And they said no, and, I, and, and, and one thing that we've noticed is that there's, a, there's actually a decently long transition period, and it's different for different people. Uh, so ketosis is something you have to be on for a while before you could probably even start to measure that stuff. So you can't just take a guy off of carbs, say, here, go keto, and then a week later put him on a bike and say, did you increase? And I don't think that that's really the best way to test it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it is is not the best way to test it, and they've pretty well demonstrated that you need it uh, a little period of time, and we know that every all the chemical reactions that happen in our body are are facilitated by enzymes. And you know, if we don't do something, then the level of those enzymes goes down. So we we have to um, we have to up our lipoprotein lipase, and we have to up lots of other enzymes uh, to make us efficient again. Hmm. Um, we have a, a question from uh, one of our listeners, uh, and he was wondering if there is uh, anything uh, regarding uh, increasing fat intakes and improved brain health or mental function? Uh, is there any research that you've done or come across uh, about that? Uh, I can't cite anything right now. There's, uh, as you know, hundreds and hundreds of anecdotes about people feeling mental clarity uh, when they uh, reduce their carbs and increase their fat, but when you stop and think about the brain is 60% fat and most of it's saturated fat, uh, and the cell membranes um, need that those saturated bonds. Um, but I have not it's seen a paper testing cognitive performance by uh, increasing the fat in the diet. Well, there, interestingly, there's been studies about the ketogenic diet and neurological problems, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. That's what actually got us started on this research because yeah. uh, we had a group member who uh, who was noticing um, some Parkinson-type syndromes, and we found out about the ketogenic diet thanks to that study. And it's amazing what they've achieved, actually. Um, and we're not talking about too much of a long-term uh you know, study or anything, but uh, they they noticed a huge increase in uh, neurological functions and uh, memory loss, etc. Yeah, remission, a lot of remission of symptoms for Parkinson's. I think uh, epilepsy is it's. Well, that was it. The very first um, mention, I think, of the term ketogenic diet comes yeah. from uh, studies done very early on with, with uh, children with epilepsy. Yeah, in their twenties. I do yeah. remember yeah. there was a funny anecdote. I don't remember who it was who, who was telling me about it. That apparently, like our brain is 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 it's a, like omega three fats predominantly, and that the chimpanzee's brain or something like that is more like omega sixes. And so I always thought that it was kind of interesting that 
the people are constantly getting pushed on these omega sixes, and they keep getting dumber and dumber. And, and I was like, I was like, well, you know, maybe it's because the brain doesn't have enough omega threes, so it's basically turning into a chimpanzee brain. <laughs> well, Doctor Lundell, uh, you, you mentioned you mentioned that uh, Ansel Keys, who became an authority on, you know, uh, low fat diet will save you. Well, uh, he was a vegan, you said. No, he wasn't necessarily vegan. The no. guy who wrote the report for McGovern, he said. Uh, yeah. Oh, was it someone else? Well, uh, th- there was something I've seen something that says that vegetarians have smaller brains. Well, I gotta tell you that. Which, <laughs> which, <laughs> no, I, I don't want to say that. I take that back. No, but I think it was it was just I mean it was discovered quite by accident. You know, it, it wasn't someone setting out to to show this to demonstrate this, but. There seemed to be some kind of correlation there. That the lack of fats, essential saturated fats in their diet, was having a direct result on their brain size. Yeah, I would. I mean, that's, that's. I mean, these are the same people that use the argument to try to convince you to eat vegetables. They say, yeah, but we're related to monkeys and they're frugivorous. And I said, yeah, that's why they're still in the trees. Uh, <laughs> that's right. I was like, you want to go back yeah, there? <laughs> If you look at evolution, uh, the human brain, it, it uh, happened when we got close to the sea and uh, consumed more omega threes. Yeah, instead yeah. of eating those fats, you know. Well, when we did you say when we got close to the sea? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's going is to that the, the, is that the aquatic ape theory? I don't know. If you, what, have you heard of that? Um, not in that term, but uh, you know, I've well, seen. The studies that say that you know when when we started getting more omega threes, we started getting mm-hmm. uh, bigger brains and smarter and so if I'm consuming fish and, yeah. and seafood there's a theory there's a competing theory to the the normal ideas about how we developed and it's called somebody wrote a book I can't remember what the person's name is it's called um, the, the, the the title of the book is the aquatic ape theory. She's a little old English lady. Yeah, she's a little English lady, and she talks about it, and it explains a lot of things about like why we have glands in the places that we have them, Yeah, and, uh, why we have less hair, why we walk bipedally. She has some good explanations yeah, for it. Yeah, and, and, and why our fat is subcutaneous under yeah, the skin. Like like sea animals, like dolphins mm-hmm. and things like that, that we have that we have some differences from from apes that are actually not really explained by any normal theories. And so that was an interesting book. I, I only read like the first couple of chapters of it and you know, mainly me not being too interested in science. I kind of put it down. <laughs> I said, oh, it's science stuff. I mean, I don't have the education to understand it, so I, I don't try to fool myself. Well, all of those things are interesting and fascinating and great topics, but what I've tried to do today is get down to some fundamental biology about why Carbohydrates hurt us, and why fats are good for us, and uh, we can we can have a theory about evolution or a theory about this or that. It was not a theory about uh, no high sugars no. causing oxidative stress and damaging our blood vessels, and high mm-hmm. sugars causing glycation of our proteins and giving us cataracts and osteoporosis and arthritis and chronic inflammation and all the rest. So those those are fundamental, uh, provable points of biology. Uh, not to diminish the the fun and the intellectual stimulation from thinking about the theory of of why we developed this and why we developed that. Yeah, but it's clear that we have to do something now about the way we're actually yeah. affecting our 
environment and our internal environment and how we're causing all these problems. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, on that note, Dr. Lundell, I think we'll we'll wrap it up. Thank you very, very much for agreeing to come on um, this Sunday. Um, we can't recommend highly enough to all our listeners that they get his book, The Cure for Heart Disease, Truth That Will Save a Nation. Very informative, and you'll see from it what you can do to inform yourself, inform others, inform others. Um, thank you, Dr. Lundell. We hope you keep writing. <laughs> yeah. Keep fighting the good Thank fight. you very much. Yeah, it was good to talk to you, man. It's been a pleasure. Hey. All right. You have a good evening. Thank you once again to all our listeners. Yeah. And we'll be back same time next week on Stop Talk Radio. Can't get rid of us that easy. Hold your horses, Horses, my belly's aching. Come on, baby, let's make.